hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. Hello. Hey, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year to you. <laughs> We're three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV and hope, hopefully teaching everyone else in the process. Hopefully. I'm, yeah. Yep. I'm Adam. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. Ha ha ha. Welcome. <laughs> we are so excited to start 2021 with you. Last year, we started off the new year with an episode about sequels. Yay! This year, we're doing it again, but with a twist. Each of us picked a movie that flopped, bombed, and fizzled into oblivion after its initial release. Then we all thought of the sequels that we would make to save those movies. A subsequent film that would give the franchise another chance. The trick was to pick movies that we didn't want to have complete reboots, but could be rescued by a very good follow-up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of movies out there that we thought, it's so bad, yeah. it can't be done. Yeah, it was a battle for me because it was like, oh, I hate this movie. <laughs> but then I was like, but I want that movie to die. I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it to yeah. have a sequel. Yeah. They had to at least be somewhat redeemable. Yes. Yep. So it eliminated quite a few um, piles of crap. So welcome to 2021 and the case of second chance sequels. Yeah. Ooh. Hooray. Yes. And I want to say up front that there will likely be spoilers uh, about the movies we picked. Yeah. So if you hear a movie that you haven't seen and want to see for whatever reason, go ahead and pause and go watch it i mean yeah don't skip it yeah just go watch the movie and then come back and, and come listen back. and then be like wow i definitely I wasted my time with them. yeah oh <laughs> 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 so i'm gonna go first here Yay. we go Yay. valerian and the city of a thousand planets oh what the movie's <gasps> perfect uh -huh -huh. <laughs> yes it is based on the french comic strip valerian et loreline which ran from 1967 to 2010. Holy mm, cow. Wow. According to the New York Times, Luke Besson had been reading the comics since he was a child, dreaming of adapting it into a film, but he had to wait until they had the technology and he had the expertise in order to pull it off. The comic has been cited as an inspiration for Star Wars and a number of other notable sci-fi properties. However, in the United States, the comic never really found the same audience. On top of that, sci-fi is a tricky venture. While long-established properties like Star Wars and Star Trek have shown that they're able to pull in both dedicated and casual fans, sci-fi films often struggle to find the mass-market appeal necessary to make up for their huge budgets. For Valerian's prospects, this was not a good sign. Non-franchise and non-sequel films without much name recognition, can struggle at the box office, especially during peak times like the summer. I had I had hopes for it. I mean, I, I, I saw that it was coming out, and I thought, I really hope that's good. Mm -hmm. But I knew that it would be bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember yep. the day after the reviews came out, and I, I texted Marcy, I think, and I said, Valerian's bad. Surprise. I had a feeling that it would be bad, yep. but it's pretty much confirmed mm -hmm. at this point. And yep. I, it's a bummer because I think sci-fi is amazing. It yes. is. Well, I saw it in the theater because mm. I was pretty excited for any sci-fi that was something else. Yeah. yeah. And the comics are great. They're they're super popular. Yeah. Especially mm -hmm. in France. But they just haven't caught on over here, which is a real shame. So the movie cost a whopping $180 million to make, and it made $41 million in the U.S. and Canada. It also made $184 million worldwide for a total of $225 million. All right. Right? Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Now that sounds like it made its money back at the very least. However, if we include all of the other costs associated with outside of production, we're looking at a movie that would have to make more like $400 million to make, to, to break even. Yuck. So I have a few points here. I just want to preface, I have four major points about why this movie didn't work. Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to go through and then explain a little bit so you get an idea. First off, the world was really well realized, but the characters, no, no, not so much. Mm-hmm. In the first few scenes, the soul of the film is captured very well. It opens on a sweeping, centuries-long history of Alpha, 
a space station that's grown over time from a modern-day base into a chaotic floating city. Then the story jumps to a detailed sequence on a bright paradise planet of human-like beings about to suffer a cataclysmic fate. In that time, we are shown a very interesting mix of natural phenomena and technology that we would consider magic. It's a very interesting and different take on sci-fi. It doesn't rely too much on the pew-pew lasers and the holograms and the stuff like that that we associate with a lot of sci-fi now. That's great. It's not as much based in our technology as like Star Wars is a one that I'll continue to jump to. But it's only until after all of this is over, we almost begrudgingly are introduced to our hero, title character Valerian, and his um, will-they-won't-they partner, Loreline. Uh, so from the beginning, the movie's priorities are clear. The vast sci-fi world is much more important than the main characters, mm. or anyone else for that matter. My next point is no one is impressed by super CGI anymore. Right? Nobody. No. Nobody Wait, cares. Listen to me, if I could. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Seriously, it's old. Nowadays, where every big summer blockbuster is full of effects and visuals on par with what we used to find mind-blowing less than a decade before this movie, yep, <laughs> we are in need of more than just that spectacle. We need interesting stories and characters to pull us through, and Valerian just doesn't have any. Uh, James Cameron's Avatar came out in 2009 and blew audiences away with visuals. Say what you will about the story of that film, but we can all agree it sure was pretty. However, by 2017, it was old news, and the effects used were, are now Hollywood staples. I don't want to say that CG has made people lazy, because I feel like the people that work on CG are working harder than ever. Mm -hmm. And those people have a really tough job, and they're incredible artists, and mm -hmm. they're doing a great work. But I do think that movies often suffer in every other department when CG is prioritized. So it's just kind of like... Yeah. So the multidimensional marketplace is one of the few set pieces of the movie that really has any wow factor because of how unique it is. However, without the characters in the story to back it up, it is impossible to care about any of it. Yeah. And it amounts to almost nothing. I bring up this point specifically because this is one of the scenes that I really liked. Mm -hmm. There is a marketplace. It's a huge bazaar of just shops upon shops upon mm -hmm. shops, right? Yeah. But the way they do it is like interdimensionally. The planet can't hold everything mm -hmm. there is. Yeah, yeah. So they basically put on virtual reality glasses and walk in nothing but they are able to see this other dimension That's with all the sweet. stores and stuff, right? Yeah. And they take this like special box with them and they mark off all the stuff they want to buy. Mm -hmm. And then when they go when they go to leave, it pulls everything from that dimension to this one. So then oh. you get all the stuff you bought. Cool. Really cool. Really unique. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter at all. It's not important. They go there to find a, a secret guy who's like a job of the hut. He's like a crime boss kind of mm -hmm. guy. And that's it. Like, you Aww. blew one of your unique bits. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, but the majority of the movie takes place on Alpha. And Alpha is a setting that sounds cool in theory, but needs more a more interesting deep dive into what makes it unique beyond those visuals. I yeah. Mean, I keep harping on it, right? So, yeah. If you're going to have something take place in a whole different universe that, like, nobody in the audience knows anything about, mm -hmm. unless you read the comics, everyone gets on Tolkien for being super long-winded uh -huh. and you know we have it's you know trilogy of of movies that are all three hours long you right. know yeah it's a lot but it was necessary mm -hmm. because people just didn't know anything about middle earth people yeah. didn't know you you had he was writing textbooks he was he was giving us a history that just mm -hmm. wasn't yeah. real you know mm -hmm. it was just like a fictitious history and and that's really hard to do without mm -hmm. being super lengthy mm -hmm. and so i mean I understand their problem here. <laughs> yeah, but that's why something like Lord of the Rings has so much staying powers because mm -hmm. we all understand what Middle-earth is about. We get it. Yeah. And we're ready to see people go on adventures within it yeah. and within those rules. But Valerian um, <laughs> is one of those tr things where they they tried, but also they... Okay, I'm going to say like they did, they did too much and also not enough. Mm. Basically, show, don't tell. 
Except for the times where you didn't need to show us everything anyway. <laughs> right? There are multiple moments in the movie where, when discussing the station of Alpha, there is so much dialogue and exposition that it begins to run together into sci-fi gibberish. <gasps> we all love that, right? Yes. And it's actually one of the first times we see Alpha. They're in a spaceship, and they're flying through it because it's big mm -hmm. enough to fly through. And the robot on the ship is explaining to us what Alpha's about. 3,236 species from the four corners of the universe live on board, pooling their knowledge and cultures. Over 5,000 languages spoken, not counting the various computer languages. Demographics? To the south are the submerged parts with 800 species living in all kinds of liquids, such as the peaceful Polong farmers who grow cobalt. The two pilots flying the ship live there. Why do they need to know this every time they come into the yeah. into the station? This like they solve this usually by including a third party that's not acquainted with the universe. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, they, they solve this by bringing in somebody that doesn't understand. So then everything's got to be dumbed down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically, the point of view of the audience. Yes. Yeah. Right. There needs to be a character that the audience re relates to. Right. Mm -hmm. And. That character doesn't exist here, yeah. but they treat <gasps> they treat us as if there is one. All the stuff they're showing is cool, yeah. but like the two the two characters that we're following right now don't need to know this already. <laughs> they live here. There is even a point where they introduce some aliens that are made specifically for this. Um, <laughs> they're these three little guys who are supposed to be the comic relief, and I'll have you know they're not they're not, not funny. funny. Got it. They're not funny at all. They may as well say, we know everything that you need to know at this exact moment, and we also know where to find your special space MacGuffin. <laughs> because they don't know, like, throughout this movie, it's like, there's a, there's a thing we need to find. It's real important, and it's going to save the world. Got it. Right? And these yeah. three aliens who are introduced, you know, at the end of the first act, kind of, like, we know all of it already. And like, wow, come on. Mm. You all could right. do a little better than that. But on the flip side of this movie, there are also moments in Alpha where there is a stretch of time showing cut after cut of different aliens and technology and all kinds of whatnot going on, right? Mm -hmm. Normally, that would be more interesting to see what they're talking about. But when almost none of them have any effect on the plot or characters, why are they there? Again, yeah. going back to the nobody being impressed by CGI. It's weird, and it really does feel like filler because of how much it happens. Yeah. My fourth and final point mm. is the lead characters are really unlikable. Uh-oh. <laughs> Almost everything down to line delivery is hard to like, especially Valerian, who seems to be an unintended asshole the whole time. But it's true. The romance. They mm. trieth. But, <laughs> but also fail. He trieth. He trieth. <laughs> They have been partners for some time, possibly several years, and clearly they have a good working professional relationship. But Valerian likes to sleep around a lot. Loreline, not so much. Valerian has presumably tried to hook up with her multiple times, and while being rejected every time so far, this has not stopped them from having a flirtatious relationship. So, okay, so this Im immediately makes you feel like he doesn't respect her. Uh-huh. Because he keeps trying and she keeps saying no and mm -hmm. maybe just stop trying. Yes, yeah. but you're absolutely 100% right. But at the same time, why is she still around? Why is she hanging out with him still? Yeah. Well, they I mean, still... she's his partner, though. It's true, but there, she, she's, she's playing, she's doing some of the flirting, too. So with that in mind... His marriage proposal later in the movie, which is apparently out of the blue, comes across as a last-ditch, I'll-say-anything attempt to get with her, which she promptly rejects again, of course. All Sounds right. like a real nice guy, doesn't he? So now the audience is immediately rooting against the relationship that the film just spent the last 30 minutes setting up. When she calls him out, she basically says, like, why do you always break women's hearts the moment you get them? Yeah. Like... As soon as they fall for you, you're like, see ya. Like, she knows what he's done. Yeah. yeah. And is like, dude, no. Yeah. Like, I see what you're doing. They then have their adventure, which is just one adventure of many they've had as special ops agents. 
So for them, this is this was a mildly more interesting Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And to the very end, Valerian still does not seem to understand his partner on a romantic mm-hmm. level, prompting a convoluted speech to him at the end um, about how it's just not working. Mm-hmm. It's just not working. Eventually, yeah. she breaks and is like, look, man, you're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in not so many words. Yeah. She then, though, inexplicably seems to accept him romantically not an hour later in their capsule. Why? It feels forced. Uh, it just seems unhealthy. Yeah. This whole yeah. thing seems unhealthy. Absolutely. There is a point where, you know, there's, in other movies, there's like, some people come closer together after going through traumatic events, right? Right. It's kind of yeah. like that. They're in this capsule together. Shit is falling apart. Because mm-hmm. yeah. of course, and then it's like, now she's kind of like feeling it. It's so forced mm. because of what had just happened. So the other problem I have with these two bozos, <laughs> um, sometimes the characters don't like to play by the rules, and that's fun. But damn, these two can't make up their minds about it. Because they're secret agents. They have superiors, and they have orders that they need to follow. But, you know, they're trying to be hotshot Han Solo types who don't play by rules, right? Right. Mm. Both of them ignore direct orders from their superiors and are seen speaking out of turn often. Then, at the climax of the freaking movie, Valerian swaps his character, going from impulsive and emotional to a stoic soldier. Like, are you kidding, man? <laughs> like, the whole movie, you were the one, and now you're all of a sudden another. Right. Okay. <laughs> I wish you could see my face right now, audience. I'm just not. I just don't understand. Loreline also comes off as the more professional one early in the movie, but then is the emotional one by the end. Why is Loreline beating the hell out of the commander instead of helping Valerian shoot the murder bots that they are currently dealing with? Some would say these are the results of character arcs, but um, they, they, didn't, they didn't have any of those. <laughs> they didn't get character arcs that would, that would do this. It upsets me. And just one bonus thing, uh, Rihanna's character should have been cut from the movie entirely because she didn't amount to anything at all. But she was in the movie because yeah. Rihanna, obviously. But she is introduced and then dies mm, yeah. half an hour ah, and didn't help. So that that's the biggest stuff that I find wrong with Valerian. Yeah. How I are mean, you going to rebuild this stuff, Adam? Yeah, Adam, let's just reboot it. I yeah. mean, yes, but also I'm trying to see if I could save it with a sequel. First, let me tell you who made this movie. Mm. Obviously, it's based on the comic written by Pierre Christian and Jean-Claude Mézier. Go read the comics if you can find an English translation. And it was directed and the screenplay was written by Luke Besson. He also directed movies such as The Fifth Element from Mm. from 1997, The Professional from 1994, and more recent Lucy from 2014. Mm. He may have a love for the source material, but based on the first movie... He lacks an understanding of what makes it great beyond the idea of a giant alien city. Mm-hmm. For my sequel, I would find a new director. Do you know who? I think the director would need to have a great understanding of how to translate the weird and bizarre world of Valerian into a likable story with character, while at the same time remaining unique and not riding the coattails of other franchises. So I always thought Guillermo del Toro, or maybe Peter Jackson, Oh, could make an okay. interesting adaptation because yeah. we mentioned Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I think that Peter Jackson had done a really good job of translating Middle Earth, at least the first time. Yeah. But at the same time, Guillermo del Toro knows how to take weird things and put them on right. uh, movies. Mm, because yeah. there's like Hellboy and that one that he won an Oscar for. <laughs> Shape of Water. Shape of Water. Uh, yeah. I was going to oh, say yeah. something of water. <laughs> Shape yeah. of Water. Thank you. So he knows how to make some weird things. Likeable, right? Right. So I think Valerian. I think needs those are great choices. That. Yeah, I yeah. I feel a little bad for Luke Besson because writers will write a movie mm-hmm. and directors will direct a movie, and then what you wrote, what you directed, and then what got edited and put together is not the same movie. So it's True. you know sometimes it, it it can be different reasons why the movie doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. I feel a little bad for him, but I think. You're making the and right call. <laughs> and, uh, he has said that he wants to try again, and he wants yeah. to do a Valerian too. You know, with how much the movie costs and how bad it bombed, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm willing to give him another shot on this. So my first point is to take some notes from popular sci-fi, but don't copy it, you ding-dis. <laughs> so again, the original comic was a major influence 
to what we see as modern sci-fi today. Those lasting ideas can be seen everywhere. So an absolutely one-to-one -one faithful adaptation would feel very stale to today's audiences. So for a sequel, you must focus on what makes this particular universe unique, that being the setting that is Alpha Station. There are locations like this in other sci-fi stories, but they are always the outer rim, backwater type locations where no one but the criminal organizations and black marketers go. The heroes are always there out of necessity or a last resort. Make Alpha a beautiful inverse of that. A bustling metropolis floating in space where everyone who's anyone wants to be. I'm thinking of a mix of a clean and shiny sci-fi of Star Trek and a hectic scrambled together environment of the other sci-fi locations that right. you can kind of imagine. And then the other piece is to go heavy on that magic-like property rather than the same lasers and holograms. Yeah. I think it's a really unique take on, on the sci-fi because it feels very mystical, magical, but it's natural. The next thing is to re-re-re-recast. <laughs> <laughs> I think Valerian could have been cast better, the character specifically, mm -hmm. not the whole movie. But Dane DeHaan is a fine actor, but he's... This is not the role for him. <laughs> the sequel needs a hotshot funny type, more like a, uh, a Chris Pratt or a Liam Hemsworth or, or even Tom Holland. And I also thought Cara Delevingne did a decent enough job as Lorelai. She was definitely better than Valerian. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be upset if she was kept, but I still think it could be done better. I'm thinking more of a summer glow from Firefly yes. mm -hmm. or a Felicity Jones, Rogue One, or maybe even Daisy Ridley if she doesn't want to do Star Wars anymore. And then Clive Owen was criminally <laughs> underutilized as the commander, mainly because he was just the hostage the whole movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he's a pretty good actor. He could do a lot more. I would rewrite um, that character if we were to bring him back. But for the sequel, we will need a new threat. That is worth a damn. We, we are simply told to care about the aliens that we saw, you know, have the catastrophe of their planet at the beginning. But it's hard to care so much when there is so much other stuff to even get to that point where it matters. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time we remember those aliens from the beginning, we've already seen about a billion other ones. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Why do we care again? <laughs> Because it's been so long. So none of that stuff. We need, a, we need a threat that matters. And my suggestion for that is to have the threat be to the city of Alpha itself. Ah. Rather than to another planet that some of them live on Alpha. And the planet, you know, they're dealing with their own shit. I need the threat to be to the whole station. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's what makes this universe interesting. And to see that risk would actually get people to care. However, this is not for free. We must spend enough time in the first act to show why Alpha is so interesting and cool. Right? Mm -hmm. Obvious. Yeah. So we need to see Alpha at its best. We need to see all the cool things, all the cool technology that is unique to this universe. Again, that magical aspect of it. And we need to fall in love with the station of Alpha, even if just a tiny piece. And then when the threat arrives, we're going to care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for God's sake... Fix their relationship, please. <laughs> so, so my fix would be pretty simple. I think it would be better, instead of throwing out things like marry me out of desperation, Valerian should just try to get Loreline to go on a date with him. Yeah. Much more simple. Show that they have a great professional partnership, and Valerian wants to see if, he could, if it could be more. And have Loreline, over the course of the movie, see that maybe he is willing to change. And, you know, he could stop sleeping around. Right. Yeah. I think that if he, I think if he wants to sleep around, that's his choice and mm -hmm. he can do that. Right. But if he knows that it's upsetting her mm -hmm. and that she doesn't want to be with him because of it mm -hmm. and he really does want to be with her. Then he needs to stop. Then he should, you know, consider not doing it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, yep. and cut out all the characters like Rihanna's character. Her name was Bubble in the movie, by the way. <laughs> she was like a goo alien that could turn into any... Thing else like uh, a like a morphing okay. kind of thing. Did she right? do a dance too? Yeah, she sing? sure did. Yeah. He I was like, kind of vaguely. He was like, that ooh, too. ah, she's wonderful. And then yeah. Lorelai's standing there, like, Ugh. yeah, you know, you get it. 
So absolutely, he needs to stop doing that if he actually gives a shit about Loreline. Mm -hmm. Yes. Also have Valerian acknowledge the brilliant things that Loreline can and has done. Make him realize how special she is to him. All I'm looking for is something believable. You know, this relationship in the first movie is completely unbelievable. Because yeah. <laughs> he's such a dick. And for some reason, she's putting up with it. I'm just looking for a believable relationship where Valerian is actually doing something meaningful if he actually wants to get with Laurel. So with all of these in mind, <laughs> and now with movie fans clamoring for sci-fi that isn't Star Wars or Marvel, like me, yeah, I think Valerian 2, City of a Thousand Boogaloos, <laughs> might just be able to find a foothold. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, so all there right. You have it. <laughs> you guys, you guys, willing to to put up a couple mil for my sequel? Uh, oh my sure. May, hopefully, investors are listening right now. Yeah. Yes, that, that was, was thorough, Adam. Yeah. Was, Thank you. I'm Thank impressed. You. I, like you said, I wanted to like Valerian. Yeah. yeah. I want some sci-fi that is not Star Wars and yes. that is not Marvel and that is not the run-of-the-mill mm -hmm. junk. And I was like, yeah. Valerian might be that. Nope. Yeah. So I think it still could be. Yes. If they want to do it on Netflix, go ahead. Yeah. But like, I think there's potential in this universe still. The comic is great again. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it, it's got, it had a lot of potential. Yeah. And yeah. there are fans that love this mm -hmm. so much and were incredibly let down. Mm -hmm. So I think they would be very happy if they got something else. <laughs> yep. I guess it's my turn now, guys. Yeah. All right. Well, we all know the story of Peter Pan. Ooh. He's a boy that comes to the window of the Darling residence in which there lives three young children, Wendy, John, and Michael. He and his fairy Tinkerbell take them to Neverland, where they tackle adventures with Hook, mermaids, and Indians. Well, in 2003, the first live-action theatrical release came out, and it, for the first time, had a young boy actually playing Peter Pan. I'm glad you're going at, right after Adam, because this is a very different yes. one. Marcy chose one that just bombed, mm -hmm. yes. and people just didn't go see it, but it was a good movie. Yes. At least mm -hmm. I thought so. This would be interesting. <laughs> yes. And so this movie was unfortunately released just before Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, oh, no. which was the much awaited <laughs> ending to the trilogy. And it was also released just before Cheaper by the Dozen, which brought in more of the family appeal. Yeah. Wow. So it kind Bummer. of didn't choose a good or didn't have a very good release time, right. unfortunately. This may have been what was partly to be blamed for the following numbers. With an $100 million estimated budget, it came out with a measly $11 million opening weekend. Oh, man, oh, man. <sighs> and then it finally only made about $48 million in the U.S. That is so sad. <sighs> For a big name like Very Peter low. Pan. Yes. Oh, my Man. goodness. That yes. is incredibly sad. Yes. And I don't know how many people know about this movie, if people mm -hmm. remember it. I feel like a lot of people do not. Pro I agree with you. Yeah. I don't hear a lot about this movie. Mm -hmm. I don't hear people's opinions on it. And I just have to say, I haven't seen it in a couple of years, mm -hmm. but I love this movie. Yeah. Like, I, I've... Yes. I watched it a lot. There are a few... There are people that wrote good reviews and everything online. Yeah. So there are some people that remember it or know of it, but I think it's grossly underappreciated and forgotten. Yeah. Although this movie was actually really good, I still thought that maybe we could bring attention back to it since it still seems to be lesser known. Yeah. Some of the other reasons that maybe it didn't do so well in theaters is that it possibly was too adult or dark for audiences. People yeah. might not have wanted oh. to take their kids to this. Interesting. It did have a dark look. It seemed to be possibly more violent looking, even though it was, I believe it is PG still. But hmm. yeah. yeah. Roger Ebert said in his review where he gave it three and a half stars. Out of four. Yeah. Pretty oh, good. good. 
It, he says it's not that the movie is overtly sexual, it's just that the sensuality is there, and the other versions have pretended that it was not. Oh, yes. So they, huh? yes. Peter likes Wendy. Mm-hmm. And when I say likes, I mean it. He likes <laughs> Wendy. He is a he yes. is a prepubescent boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is he's probably about eleven or twelve years old. <laughs> it it's incredibly innocent though. Yes. It's yes, just yes. that's yes. just a, a very young kid right. crush. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very sweet mm-hmm. kind of relationship. It is not you yes. know, upsetting in mm-hmm. any way. Right. I mean, Wendy's excited by the yes. idea that a boy is coming to her window and taking her away. Yeah. It's 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 a fantasy thing that yep. is very dream-like, yep. right? You, yeah. You may have a dream where you get whisked away by somebody, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're a boy or a girl. Right. It might, it, you know, it's the same kind of vibe. And I think, I think that the Disney one touched on this a little bit because Peter is kind of like, hey, I want you to be our mother. Right, mm-hmm. right. Quote, unquote, yes. our mother. I want you to stay here with me and then take care of all these kids and stuff, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so yes. that I don't have to. Yeah. Right. So in this, in this one... They ask her Wendy to be their mother, but Peter is father. Yep. And oh, and see. he's like he's like, Oh, it's not you know, it's just pretend Wendy. It's just pretend. It's not you you know it's just pretend, right? But um, you can tell it's like unless. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But on the count of it being dark, you actually in this version see some pirates being shot. And you also see a fairy de- death as Hook whispers that he does not believe in them. Yes. Oh, wow. So there's a Brutal. little bit more death yeah. in this one. It was. It felt more grown up. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so cool because when I saw this in theaters, I was mm-hmm. 12, 13 years old. So I was the same age as Wendy and it resonated with me mm-hmm. because of those reasons. And I, it was nice to see the story, but a little grown up. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, Neverland has n- has never been really this like perfect, lovely place. Right. It's just a place where Peter Pan lives and you don't grow up. Mm-hmm. But there's still pirates and Indians yeah. and mermaids and that want to drown Mermaids, exactly. Yeah. That it's like, it's not, it's not a paradise or anything. It's just, so that's really cool that they actually kind of pushed into that a little bit. Yeah. Yes. So Adam talked about the CGI in Valerian a lot (laughs) and how it was used a lot. And for the time that this movie came out in 2003, CGI was really big and they did use it a lot. It was new, really Mm -hmm. pretty new. But I will say that they did not use it too much. Although they had originally wanted to use CGI a lot more, especially to bring Tink to life. They actually ended up not doing that. They only used it when necessary or for scenery. They actually built the Jolly Roger and just sets like that. And then I think they mostly just used for the scene, the background scene. Flying and stuff like that. And flying and Tink's wings and things like that. Mm -hmm. The actress that they had for Tink did so well and had such expressiveness that they didn't want to animate it, but let her acting actually show. That's which is cool. Really nice. Yeah. And the parrot on the pirate ship is thankfully also practical, (laughs) though he is still pretty creepy. Yeah. (laughs) So the original writer of Peter Pan is, of course, J.M. Barry, with the original stage play in 1904, and later the extended novel called Peter and Wendy in 1911. For the movie, it was written by its director, P.J. Hogan, with help from Michael Goldenberg. This adaptation stays very close to the original. Many seem to say that it is the most faithful movie adaptation. It still does, of course, take some liberties and story changes, such as adding an Aunt Millicent, but the heart of it still seems to stay the same. Yes, this one really focuses on the pain a child goes through when they're growing up and why they don't want to. And Mm -hmm. so this one focuses a lot more on that and why Wendy runs away. Wendy runs away in this movie because she doesn't want to grow up. Yes. Okay. That is mm-hmm. that is why she goes with Peter. Yeah. And the movie actually focuses on that because that's what it is. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Peter says, forget them, forget them all, mm-hmm. and whisks her away. Forget them, Wendy. Forget them all. Come with me. We'll never, never have to worry about grown up things again. This sounds cool. Yeah, yes. it's a good movie. 
So the music was by James Newton Howard. Beautiful score. Hooray. So beautiful. This is a great so score. Yes. Yeah, good. Oh, man. Um, side note, just so for you guys, mm-hmm. Valerian score, completely forgettable, so I didn't even bother mentioning <laughs> So, what would I imagine the sequel to be? Well, I'm not a writer. I will be the first one to admit this. (laughs) I'm not going to pretend. I thoroughly enjoy a great story, but am not the greatest at coming up with my own. That being said, I feel like the film would largely benefit from a sequel. Throughout the process of rewatching and looking into the movie, I thought of several storylines that could be taken. Since I believe that the original people that worked on this movie did well, I think I would keep the director the same, probably. But I would definitely, definitely keep the composer the same. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is a, a must. Yes. I need to hear more of those themes. Yes. Again. Yeah. When they go flying for the first time, that uplifting music. Yeah. So beautiful. And then when Peter Pan at the end just rises against Hook. Oh, it's mm-hmm. just. Yes. Oh, oh man. There was a lot I enjoy about this movie, but one of the things that I thought was really cool was that Wendy knew what she wanted in life. She declared in the beginning that she wanted to write a novel in three parts. Her Aunt Millicent, of course, declared that novelists are the most difficult to marry and that she must grow up and move out of the nursery. (laughs) I like how that's the specific point. They're hard to marry. (laughs) Nothing else is difficult about writing. We we need to marry you off, Wendy. Come on. But Wendy also declares several times that she is not girly. For example, when a pirate calls her that, she promptly says, Who are you to call me girly? As she continues to sword fight him. Got him. (laughs) Girly? (laughs) Who be you to call me girly? Her character is strong, and I think it would be really cool to follow her somehow. Like in her 20s before she's married... Or maybe even her daughter. I also, side note, would like Emma Thompson to narrate because just yes. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Why not? Why not? (laughs) If I were to say what the sequel would be, Emma Thompson's narrating. Yeah. yeah. That'd be a very interesting take on a narrator because it's usually like the, oh, Peter Pan was a boy and he was... (laughs) Yeah. He had a shadow that he couldn't keep control of. (laughs) uh, It'd be interesting to to hear a different, you know, I'm sure she'd do like a, it'd be a cool take. Yeah. It would be. In this adaptation, Wendy tells Hook that she had imagined that if she were a pirate, she would be red-handed Jill. Mm. Ooh, I I like the direction you're going already. Yes. In the original book, it is John who brings up a similar name. In the book, it goes, stow this gab, roared Hook, and the spokesmen were dragged back. You boy, he said, addressing John, (laughs) you look as if you had a little pluck in you. Didst never want to be a pirate, my hearty? Now, John had sometimes experienced this hankering at maths prep, and he was struck by Hook's picking him out. I once thought of calling myself red-handed Jack, he said diffidently. So I thought it was cool that in this version, you know, she says she would be red-handed Jill. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it would be cool that if there was a sequel, it would be Wendy's daughter who goes to Neverland. And since Hook has since perished, she meets a pirate named Red-Handed Jill after hearing all of her mother's stories. Yeah. Hey, cool. I think it would be, yeah, I think that would be really interesting. We could escape that trope of Wendy kind of falls into society and does the things she's supposed to do because that's what growing up is. And yeah. then when she has kids, she's doing the same thing where you need to grow up. And then her kid shows her that like, she's just like her mom. And yep. you know, it'd be cool if we avoided that. And then they definitely, it's really cool that they bring back all of the lost boys. The lost boys mm. come back and yes. they are adopted. Yes. The darlings. Except for slightly, slightly comes slightly too late. (laughs) Yeah. And gets adopted by Aunt Millicent. Yeah. So that's really cool. I love that too. Yeah. And it's very, it's very sad actually because Mm -hmm. Peter will always be alone, but he can't, Peter can't come back and grow up because he has to be the boy that never grows up. That's the nature of the story. That's just, you know, Hook did it differently, obviously, but like, that's, you know, that's why he has to 
not go. You know, yeah. he just yeah. to be yeah. true to what J.M. Barry wrote, you know, it's mm-hmm. just he just can't. Yeah. So I just feel that if she had a daughter, she would be hearing all these stories, not just from her mother, yeah. but from her uncles, really. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very cool. I'm it's, in. Yeah, it's so I idea. feel like her daughter would be a really, really strong character. Yes. And I think I'm more willing to put down money on that sequel than, <laughs> than Valerian 2. <laughs> because, I don't know, it just seems more worthwhile. So, I guess it's my turn. Yes. Woo, yes. Okay. So, mine is very special. Oh, boy. I have a very special movie with lots and lots of opinions out there about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right ahead and get started. All right. The year is 1987. For the past few years, toy sales have been through the roof for He-Man and Masters of the Universe. <gasps> yes. The filmation cartoon based on the Mattel characters is wildly popular, with little kids all over America tuning in during the week and on Saturday mornings. Everyone who's anyone has a Castle Grayskull and any number of the hundreds of colorful characters that hail from the land of Eternia. He-Man is the master of the toy universe. It's amazing. However, sales have started dropping over the past year. No one can really pinpoint the reason, though some blame the creation of She-Ra, Princess of Power, highly unlikely. (laughs) Whatever the reason, Mattel is not worried quite yet. Why? Well, something is coming that could turn all of this around in an instant. Something big that will renew interest in the toy franchise and put He-Man back on top. A major motion picture. I have the power. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Guys, do you think it did it? Do you think the movie um, fixed it? So back in 1987, my dad took my six-year-old sister, who was really into She-Ra, to the theater to watch this new cinematic marvel. It's always been a habit of my dad's to sit through all the credits of a film, usually to listen to the score. So the two of them sat alone in an empty theater until the very last moments. Then something crazy happened, something almost unheard of in the 1980s. The black screen lit back up again, showing a vat of red steaming liquid. The face of Skeletor popped up and said, I'll be back, with a freeze frame and a fade to black. I'll be back. Ooh. What? Eat your heart out, Marvel. Yeah. (laughs) This end credits scene was a remarkable discovery since no one else knew to stay behind after the credits. My dad still talks about it. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it was a big deal. It posed a question that has been met with over 30 years of silence. Will there be a sequel? <gasps> <laughs> oh, boy. Sorry, Skeletor. <laughs> there was a lot of confidence. I think there's a lot of confidence in putting that. Cre- I mean, I'm wondering if they were just like, eh, just do it because no one's going to stay. No one's going to look. <laughs> It'll be fun for us. Yeah. <laughs> So there was, of course, a Masters of the Universe, but there was never a Masters of the Universe 2. So what was wrong with the movie? This is actually kind of a difficult question to answer because some fans actually enjoyed it, while others want to kill it with fire or laser beams. (laughs) Yeah. So when I was a kid, we actually did watch this movie. Uh, My sister and my brother both liked it, and they were both Masters of the Universe fans. My brother was a really big Masters of the Universe fan. And so they enjoyed it. They thought it was Mm -hmm. fine. The film was a financial and critical failure. It faded from theaters quickly, and it was clear that it would not be the saving grace that Mattel was hoping for. The Masters of the Universe toy line stopped production. While there have been many attempts over the years to reboot the franchise, one attempt was set to release this spring and was pushed back, and will probably release on Netflix now, there will likely never be a sequel to the 1987 film. According to IMDb, the movie costs an estimated $22 million to make, which was a fairly low budget. It only made about $17 million back, meaning that it was the literal definition of a flop. It was only in theaters for three weeks. Wow. It got pulled after three weeks in theaters. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So it might have made more. Canon Films was the production company behind the movie, a studio known for notoriously campy projects. You guys remember all those Chuck Norris movies from the 80s? Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Superman 4. You guys remember that one? Oh, no. Really? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, no. Yes. Don't bring that one back. <laughs> Canon was known for B-action movies and had recently been overspending on projects that were not doing well at the box office. Because of this, Masters of the Universe ran out of money before the film finished production and had barely made it to the finish line. Oh, oh no. Yes, in fact, they were filming a scene and an executive came in and said, you're done. Shut down production. You're done. Ugh. That's the end. Ah. And they didn't have a finale shot yet. So there's a fight scene in the finale. Have you guys ever seen this movie? I Mm-mm. have not. Uh-uh. So no. there's a finale where He-Man and Skeletor are fighting and it's just all dark around them. Uh-huh. It's and the idea you're supposed to assume that like all the power's been absorbed, light's been absorbed yeah. in the room. Yeah. It's because all the set was taken down and there was no set anymore. And so oh they just gosh. turned off all the lights and just had them fighting basically in the dark. Oh, oh my wow. gosh. Yeah. Oh. Because of the budget issues, the film could not be the sci-fi fantasy epic that, that the director wanted. Instead, the characters were forced to leave Eternia and travel to Earth. Instead of He-Man being the central focus, audiences are meant to connect with a young Courtney Cox and her boyfriend. This did not sit well with a lot of diehard fans who came to the theater to see their favorite cartoon characters come to life. Of course, He-Man and some other main characters like Skeletor, Tila, Evil Lynn, and Man-at-Arms are present, but many of the elements of the He-Man story are gone. Oh man, that's a bummer. Ooh. Yeah. He-Man's just kind of there. And that that's the best way I can think to describe mm. it. I wouldn't say that he's the main character of the Bomber, movie. what the hell? Yeah. Wow. One of the biggest complaints from fans was that the characters didn't look like they did in the cartoon. Putting that aside, the film added a new character, Wildor, which many viewers did not like. In a universe that had hundreds of side characters, why did they feel the need to create a new character? Especially when Orlok, a staple of the cartoon, was noticeably absent. One thing that fans could not agree on was Dolph Lundgren as He-Man. Those who found the film delightfully fun and cheesy didn't mind his somewhat stoic performance. After all, the film completely did away with He-Man's alter ego, Prince Adam, who has a much goofier and brighter personality. If you're unfamiliar with this cartoon, He-Man is also Prince Adam. The one you see in the memes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. he's a sense. Okay. Yeah, he's comedic. He's a nice guy. He's so goofy that no one would ever think that this guy is He-Man. That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Ah. Because he looks exactly the same. Yeah, <laughs> of course. It's a Superman thing where yeah. it's like, yeah. of course that's him. Yeah. But nobody But the personality gets it. is so different mm-hmm. that you just there's no way, right? Mm-hmm. Ah. And so <laughs> They did away with this, and this was not great for a lot of reasons. Like, one of the reasons it's not great is because you kind of lose this whole aspect of He-Man's personality. Part of the reason that kids liked this character so much was because they felt like it was cool. He could transform into Mm -hmm. something cool. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how wimpy or nerdy or, you know, goofy he is. Yeah, I'm like Prince Adam. Maybe I can become He-Man. Yeah. Dolph was an up-and-coming star at the time, and he had since counted this performance as the worst moment of his acting career. While I think there could have been a better He-Man, I don't think it was that bad, Dolph. I don't think it was... (laughs) Give yourself some credit for this one. I will say, if you're going into this looking for a fun time, you're, you're set. You're fine. This is not necessarily a bad movie. You know, it's campy. It's there's nothing overtly terrible about this movie, I think. But if you're a He-Man fan, <laughs> I can see why you would be incredibly disappointed in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I also see why people who weren't disappointed in it weren't disappointed. There, in it. Yes. there are moments to like. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those hardcore fans probably would have preferred a feature-length animated episode, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The biggest change is the amount of violence. There was a clause in the contract that he could not take a human life, as He-Man is generally a non-violent character that uses his intelligence to beat the bad guys. So the script had him killing robots that look like black stormtroopers instead. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Roger, roger. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I was watching the movie as an adult. I've seen it a few times before. I was watching it for this episode. I thought... I didn't know that they were robots. I didn't. I, uh, I you just they, assumed there were people. Oh. In there, huh? Yeah, I was yeah. like, mm. what a what a loophole. 
There is no doubt that Skeletor looks and seems different in this movie, but that's not totally a bad thing. Frank Langella, who portrayed the skeleton-faced villain, brought a level of seriousness to the character. Oh, I need to smash you out of existence! To drive your cursed face from my memory forever! Yes! Let this be our final battle! His performance is possibly the best one of the film. I say possibly it was. It was the best. (laughs) I would hope so. Yes. Because Skeletor is that good. Yeah, Skeletor is, he did a good job. You could tell he's enjoying himself. He's being silly and cheesy and weird. I, I, you know, as a B-movie villain, top notch. Nice. He's doing a good job. So one of the things that I really disliked about this movie was that it, it's Star Wars-iness. Gotta love that. It's not controversial to say that this movie wanted to be Star Wars. It Everyone knows it. Even people who like this movie, they're <laughs> like, yes, yes, uh-huh. obviously. Bill Conti's score is great. It is a good score, but definitely close to John Williams' score. The opening scene immediately feels close to Star Wars, as a hooded Skeletor quickly walks into the throne room, surrounded by robot henchmen that resemble black stormtroopers. Gwildor was even meant to be a Yoda-like character, and canon called this movie the Star Wars of the 80s. Oh, Ouch. oh no way. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So they they wanted it. They wanted, yep. you know, Star Wars obviously sold toys like, like crazy. Yeah. Gangbusters. And so obviously they wanted the movie to be like Star Wars. Yeah. Uh-huh. So here's why I think a sequel would help. This film serves a happy fan base, but not necessarily the fan base that it was meant for. It's a fun, cheesy 80s movie that was part of many childhoods. That's why I think it deserves a sequel and not a full-on reboot. This movie will still be part of the franchise for those who love it, and a new movie could take a step back and focus on the things that made He-Man, He-Man. Yeah. I think it's totally possible nowadays to to do... Yeah, they don't have to go to Earth anymore. It would be much <laughs> easier to pull off a fantasy setting now. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They could have a budget now. They could, right. you know, it was, right. I mean, the the fan base for He-Man now is adults. Yeah. And adults yep. have money. They will yep. go and buy the tickets to the movie. Yep. Yep. All right. So I'm going to talk about who made the movie and who I think should make the movie. With canon films defunct and director Gary Goddard, a troubling figure that stands accused of numerous sexual assault allegations, using the same team to make the sequel is out of the question. <laughs> yes. The reboot that's in the works is a Sony property that may be released straight to Netflix. Netflix is is hit or miss with its movies, but has the ability to make something spectacular if it wants to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As a director of the sequel, my first choice as of right now would be Taika Waititi. Oh, Uh, nice Brilliant choice. Yes, I think he could do it. Mm -hmm. Taika makes weird movies, and I think that makes him the perfect candidate for a follow-up to this delicious piece of 80s cheese. In Thor Ragnarok, he was able to pull off a film set entirely in a different world. And for this sequel to work, it would have to take place in Eternia. Taika has mastered the blend of humor and serious action. I think he could make a successful action film, but with the humor of the original cartoon. That is a, that is a really good choice. I mean, obviously you don't want to copy Thor Ragnarok, but yes. like Thor Ragnarok almost feels like it could have been... A He-Man movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he does other weird stuff, but he's funny and he really, he's so good at mixing emotion with humor, with action. He balances it well. As a screenwriter, I honestly would go with the original writer for the first film, David O'Dell. O'Dell is a talented writer that has worked in a lot of great films. There are genuinely funny moments of the original, and I think he could bring some of that magic back for a sequel. But I also think it would be cool if Taika also co-wrote the screenplay with O'Dell. Ah, yes. That would be neat. The problem that a lot of people have with making a He-Man movie that's so campy and silly and the characters look the same is that mainstream audiences might not take it seriously enough. And that's Mm -hmm. why they would make it darker and have them wear different costumes and, you know, put in some guns because audiences might not want to go see it yeah Mm -hmm. and i feel like he could find a way to make it that way yeah but people could still take it seriously yeah Yeah, you have to just advertise it right and 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 you know make sure people know that it's kind of got that vibe yeah Mm -hmm. i think 
nowadays, I think people would see that for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I definitely would. Absolutely. I would love to go see that. Since the movie is over 30 years old, I would definitely want to recast. Although Frank Langella did a solid job as Skeletor originally, I just can't help but feel that Jim Carrey could really make the character oh, shine. No. My oh. best. Oh my oh, goodness. No. I got I must have this movie. <laughs> Carrey had a great turn as Dr. Eggman in the recent Sonic the Hedgehog film, and that performance makes me feel that he could easily play a diabolical yet witty Skeletor. One thousand percent agree yeah oh, i think yes. he could do i think that role was a really good example of him not doing the overacting jim carrey thing that uh-huh. people say he does as eggman he was perfect yes. i think i think he really nailed that role and i think that skeletor would be a little bit on that side of the spectrum yeah a bit serious but with witty jokes doing silly things every now and mm-hmm. then obviously that crazy laugh like oh yeah and like i can imagine him over yelling at a minion who didn't do anything wrong. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh oh man, I want this real bad. I we, think he can. We do need it. to contact Odell and Taika. As the lead He-Man himself, I have a couple different ideas. For one thing, I would want the sequel to include Prince Adam, He-Man's alter ego. For this, I think the character could be played by two different actors, even since no one is supposed to know that Prince Adam and He-Man are the same guy. I am leaning toward a good-spirited actor that would take the role seriously, yet still bring a lot of charm and camp to the role. My first choice would probably be The Rock. He's really good at super campy, ridiculous stuff. Uh-huh. Right? And he just looked... He could pull off a heat. Yes. Oh, Are yeah. you kidding me? Yes, Easily. exactly. Exactly. But I think it would be hilarious if Prince Adam was played by someone like John Cena and He-Man <gasps> was played by The Rock. Oh, my, oh my God. God, yes. That would be great... <laughs> Dude, that would you'd immediately have the WWE audience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they're not also fans of He-Man. Yeah, I just think that'd be cool because in John Cena's the little a little bit more of the sensitive character. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, and kind of being silly but sensitive, and then The Rock is the let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> and I the idea that to the audience, obviously they're two different people. They look completely different yes nothing yeah. like but everyone yeah. in the movie has no clue yeah that would be so great yeah i think that that i yeah i don't know i think that would be a really funny way to do it yeah, yeah it yeah. would um but yeah i think either of those if you just if you did want to just use one actor either one would be fine but question though so the hair is a big he-man ah uh, yes the blonde uh, flowy hair the is like the iconic bob he-man <laughs> yeah. thing Dude. would you put, put a wig on, on each of them absolutely i would 100 okay. put a wig on the rock absolutely I, yes i would definitely do it yes i would do a blonde wig i think on both of them yes because yeah. this is supposed to be something we're kind of laughing at too, yeah you know? that's true this isn't... I would love it. That would yeah. be amazing. <laughs> I think we could find a balance where it's funny, but we're also kind of into it, you know? You know what's really, like, bumming me out right now? Thinking about this and knowing that they're already working on another. Yes. Yeah. And that it's not this. It's not going to be this. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what I think the sequel would be about. At the end of the original, our gang of friends gives a gem to the humans and tells them that Eternia will be close by. I think we could bring this back for the sequel, but this time the humans could be transported to Eternia. Aha. Since Skeletor is believed to be dead, he has been biding his time, letting Eternia get comfortable in his absence. Prince Adam has been fighting less battles as He-Man and is about to ascend to the throne after his father's death. But Skeletor plans his return for the day of Prince Adam's coronation, where he will kill Prince Adam and take the throne for himself. Damn, son. Diabolical. Yeah. Meanwhile, on Earth, the children of Julie and Kevin, the protagonists from the first movie, get the gem and accidentally transport themselves somehow to Eternia and get caught up in the mess. Ah. Sounds like a good time. Yeah, yeah thank it you. Does. See, I, I don't have all the details, okay? I don't need to do everything for you. I've no. got your screenwriter and your yeah. director and yeah. some of the actors. <laughs> like, yeah, I've got, I've, you know, I've got some good things right there. Go make man. it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You just have to fill in all of the, like, exactly what happens. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's I, easy. <laughs> I think having elements from the first one would be great and really does make it a sequel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would have to watch that first one, get through it, and... Yeah. <laughs> Force your way through. <laughs> but I don't think it would be that hard because it is a really campy, cheesy movie, and this yeah. one would be... It would be like the difference... It would be like the difference between Alien and Aliens. Yeah. You know, the second movie would probably be a genre shifting kind of movie. It uh-huh. wouldn't be an yeah. action flick mm-hmm. as much. 
And I think that that would help and it could work. That sounds great. And I want that movie. Um, I had, I was never like into He-Man. Obviously, it was before our time, really. Mm-hmm. But I know enough about it, and I love Skeletor and the world of Eternia. I think it's really cool. So I'm in on that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Me too. And you know that, like you said, all of the adult fans of of He-Man and Masters of the Universe would absolutely go see yes. it. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. But I think that's it. We did it. We did our sequels. That is a second chance case closed. Hooray. Yay. Great job, everybody. (sighs) Let us know what you think and if you would go see any of our sequels. Yes. Or if you have any money to put up for them. (laughs) Or, yeah, sort of go fund me for them. Yeah. Or connections to make it happen. Yes. I (laughs) I think your two should happen more than mine. That's okay. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you very, very much. You can find all of our stuff once again at blackcasediaries.com. And why don't you go check out our brand new show, VCD Presents No Small Parts. Yay! Go subscribe to that feed because you probably saw the first episode coming out, but the rest of them are going to be on their own feed. So Mm -hmm. make sure to go subscribe over there. You can find it on the website. So you don't have to look too hard. I think that's it. Yeah. Right? All right. Cool. Thanks. Yes. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. That's right. Happy New Year. See you next week. That's right. See you later. Bye. Bye.